What is ordo-liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Stefan Kolev. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Stefan Kolev. Stefan studied economics and business administration at the University of Hamburg from 1999 to 2005. From 2006 to 2011, he wrote his PhD thesis in economics at the University of Hamburg on the history and political economy of neoliberalism. During his studies, he was a fellow of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. Since March 2012, he has been Professor of Political Economy at the University of Applied Sciences Zwickau. He is the Deputy Director of the Wilhelm Röpke Institute, Erfurt, and Advisory Board Member of the Alliance for the Social Market Economy, ASM, Tübingen, as well as a Research Fellow of the Hamburg Institute of International Economics. In 2015, Stefan co-founded the Network for Constitutional Economics and Social Philosophy. Stefan, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. In each episode, we start with a question and we go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today for the episode is, what is ordo-liberalism? And I think the best place for us to tackle this kind of conversation is to trace a bit of history. And then I'd like to ask you some questions about some of the principles of ordo-liberalism. So you do this in, in some of your articles, so I'd like you to do it here. Let's start with some of the context on the origins of ordo-liberalism, specifically with a key figure named Walter Eucken. Can you tell us a bit about him, who he was, where he came from, and the colleagues that surrounded him? And tell us about the genesis of these ideas. Then we can get into some specific principles. Okay, I think that's a wonderful start. So um, so Eucken was indeed the central figure uh, of that group, which came to be known in the 1940s and 50s as ordo-liberalism. He was a German economist born in 1891 and passed away tragically in 1950 when he was giving a lecture series at LSE in London. Um, so roughly speaking, we talk about, if our listeners know the Austrian school, we roughly talk about the generation of Hayek. Um, he, as most of his fellow economists during the day, was raised in the so-called German historical school tradition, which was which didn't love theory. So economic theory, basically that generation had to learn much later. He uh, was trained to that very broad tradition of what was called in Germany Staatswissenschaften, which actually today comes pretty close to PPE, so to philosophy, politics, and economics. So they had a training in philosophy, they had a training in law, in what was called uh, slightly later sociology. His father was uh, a philosopher who also won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So, um, yeah, Oike grew up in that interesting mix of parental and um, other influences, fought during World War I, as many of the generation did, and then in the 1920s, he started developing an approach to economics and to politics, which later, as I said, was called by somebody else, ordo-liberalism, which was basically the struggle of what is economic theory, because as I said, uh, that generation in Germany had to rediscover economic theory, and what is economic theory and policy for that specific super difficult context of the 1930s and 40s, which I call an age of fragility. And so um, how do we, what kind of political economy do we need for such an age? And tragically, as I see it, our age today uh, resembles that uh, fragility pattern quite a bit. So there is a, an explosion recently in liter literature about ordo-liberalism in some of the best economic presses, which I at least to some extent can attribute to 
to the fragility of the 30s and fragility today of our age today, which, um, as I said, sadly uh, shows some parallels. So that's the very broad, um, basically, timeline which we talk about, and I will, perhaps we can dig into some details. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great place to start. A couple of follow-ups to that, especially for Walter Eichen's life. Um, y- y- you, and I read this in one of your articles, you said that there was a sort of a previous consensus in Germany, especially if we go back to like the late 1800s, for example, that, you know, large business concerns, cartels, even in conjunction with the state, you know, they were good and, and stabilized the economy. And you noted actually that Eucken and his associates and students for a while were either in associations or in within ministerial bureaucracy. And they observed like, you know, the deepening entanglements between the state and and business power and things like that. Could, could you talk a bit about that? Because I think it's interesting that people from that context might come to ideologically believe that's a good thing, but, th- but they went the other way. Indeed, the German tradition, somewhere in the late 19th century, became very friendly to monopolies and cartels. They were seen both by economists and especially by lawyers as uh, something which stabilizes the economy during crises, right? So whenever you have a depression, uh, which you already had in the late 19th century in Germany, people thought, well, again, lawyers, lawyers and economists thought uh, that uh, cartels being that coordinated structure of uh, large companies or companies of any size actually stabilized the crisis, uh, the economy during that crisis so that the downturn doesn't get as severe as it, um, as it could get, they thought, right? So that was a pretty strong opinion, which was also legally codified by some important uh, verdicts of the imperial court. So um, that was really the intellectual climate. Of course, that was not tragic, until World War One, because you had a very open economy, right? So in an open economy, cartels was not as painful and uh, problematic as they became during World War One, where, of course, the integration of the global economy fell apart. Uh, and also after World War One, um, um, the integration ever came back to the 1914 levels. Uh, so in such a context, uh, that heavily uh, entangled economy um, really became a problem. And as you said, uh, Many of these uh, economists had some professional experience in what we would call today lobbyism of all kinds, so associations in Berlin and elsewhere lobbying for their special interests. Um, and so the general aim of liberalism, which is to counteract power in the economy, but also in society, uh, had quite a bit to do with that heavily, um, um, well, of that super problematic entanglement between special interest groups, um, economic policy, the upcoming of interventionism after World War I. Uh, and it was, a, it was an entanglement which they really struggled and fought uh, mentally how to actually disentangle. Um, and after World War II, uh, when the German industry had to be decartelized, uh, they really had an agenda which was helpful to do that. But it was a very long and winding road. Uh, which only in 1957-58 led to um, to an antitrust law. Right? So uh, in, that, in that sense, the U.S. were uh, ahead many decades. And just before we move forward to a couple of other follow-up questions I have, <clears throat> I just want to make sure that the uh, the listener, especially if this is their first time they're being exposed to the idea of ordo-liberalism, can, can sort of orient that sort of liberalism in their head w- with other currents and waves at the time. Um, you know, for the sake of this conversation, I'll use how some people broadly define the term neoliberalism as sort of the re- rejuvenation or or revisiting of traditional liberal ideas in, in the 20th century. Like that's how it was viewed, in, especially in the early 20th century. And uh, 
is it correct to think of ordo liberalism as sort of a subset of like the rejuvenation of these liberal ideas or like an early form of neoliberalism or how would you orient this in your head how 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 would you paint the picture of larger liberalism and put ordo liberalism within it yeah this is a quintessential question so um you introduced the podcast by saying that it's about classical liberalism and let me briefly say why i think that actually neoliberalism is a much better term so um if you track the history of neoliberalism, um, it actually goes way, way, way earlier. So you can find, if you go on Google Engram and search for the term, you actually find the term in the early 19th century, in the late 19th century. So it turns out that many generations, uh, or as I would claim in a second, actually every generation, uh, comes up with its own neoliberalism. Now, the prominent usage in the context we are discussing is indeed the 1930s when um, the few liberals, uh, self-identified liberals, who had remained um, met, for example, at a colloquial to Lippmann in Paris, which was an important conference, or later in the context of the Montpellier Society. And they said, well, we need uh, neoliberalism, which means that we need, to, um, we need to critically revisit the legacy of liberalism of the 19th century and check what of that legacy is actually still topical for our times. And indeed, uh, the ordoliberals were basically the German group within that slightly larger movement of neoliberals because you had some in London, some in Vienna, some uh, in Geneva, some in Chicago, some in some other European countries like France and Italy. Uh, but yeah, the German ordoliberals were indeed a subset within that specific neoliberalism. But as, but as I said, uh, Neoliberalism can actually mean two things. So either we try to find something substantive, um, substantive about, well, this is the difference between neoliberalism and paleoliberalism, for example, or what I propose is actually a procedural reading of neoliberalism, which means that the history of liberalism can be subdivided into a sequence of neoliberalisms, which means that anybody in the history of liberalism whom we remember, and we have forgotten quite a few people, some of them rightly so, but those whom we remember were actually all neoliberals. Like for example, um, Adam Smith was a neoliberal vis-a-vis John Locke, or John Stuart Mill was a neoliberal vis-a-vis Smith and Locke, right? Which means, which means that I, we can basically conceptualize liberalism as a doctrine which has a sort of stable core but any generation actually revisits that core um, and certainly adds both new content and or new rhetoric or packaging to that overall doctrine, right? And so by that, I believe the 1930s was a specific and important neoliberalism. And as I said in the beginning, one from which we can learn today, but I find it helpful to, to see the whole development of liberalism as, as, as that sequence. And let me briefly say why I don't like the classical liberalism um, term as a self-identifier uh, for people like myself. Um, I think if, if we, so I used to call myself a classical liberal. Today I call myself a neoliberal. Uh, the problem which I see with classical liberalism is this. Whenever we declare something to be classical, it actually means that we put it on a pedestal, right? So we take it up and make a monument out of that. And um, that basically means that we start emulating that 
thing which we have put on the pedestal, right, of which we have made a monument. And I believe that this has really super problematic consequences, uh, or it has the potential, which is very vivid in the liberal community, as many of us can testify, of getting us towards dogmatism, towards getting doctrinaire, towards getting sectarian or even cultish. So I really think that we should learn from history of liberalism, from the history of economics, but we should not try to emulate those who are already dead. We can learn from them, we can get inspirations from them, and then every generation, including ours, should come up with its own neoliberalism because the context and the threats to liberalism are quite different in every generation. Excellent. That, that's a very thought-provoking response. And I'll say that it, as, as you answered, you traced a lot of different areas, which I'd love to go down uh, into, but uh, but I have to bring us back to order liberalism specifically. But I think that's very good context. And maybe if, if you want to come back after we finished our conversation for another episode, I think it'd be great to actually talk to you about some of the points you raised. Because sure. I think the how um, classical liberal fits within the broader discussion of what you were tracing as neoliberalism is, is fascinating. And, and uh, but, but for the purposes of our discussion today, I think everything you just said not only can we table a couple of things, but we can dive deeper into the context you provided for where order liberalism fits into it. So um, continuing that train of thought, though, so in terms of how the uh, the listener can orient this type of uh, liberalism within other other currents and waves of that time. Here's another interesting one I think that's very important. You you found a lot of overlap between the this this sort of German order liberalism and the Chicago school type of new liberals, at the, well, new liberals, they were called the new liberals at the time, to your point, the neoliberal ideas of the time. In other words, like Chicago school liberals or neoliberals and ordo liberals, there's a lot of overlap. But you note here that, and here's another layer, you note here that, but you're specifically referring to the old Chicago and not the new Chicago uh, when you make that distinction. So again, here's another thing I think it'd be great if you walked us through. Why is their overlap or what have you found that overlaps between ordo liberalism and old Chicago? And why is that important to distinguish between what we could call new Chicago? Yeah, I think that is important indeed to understand that ordo liberalism, I mean, it sounds German, it's something about order and we'll come, we'll come to that uh, in, the next, uh, in the next minutes. But it's not a Germanic oddity or peculiarity, or some people call it call it an irritation. Uh, actually, it was for those groups which I mentioned before, and Chicago is one of them. Uh, it was really a shared research program, a shared agenda, which they followed through the 1930s and 40s. So the interesting thing is that um, we don't quite know, for example, between Chicago and Freiburg, right? Um, I've done a lot of work with uh, friends and colleagues. We do have some you know, some lifelines below the Atlantic, as we call them, but we don't really have clear-cut, um, like, letters and exchange and sharing thoughts and things like that. So, actually, if you see that, as I call it, archipelago of neoliberalisms, of which Geneva and Freiburg being auto-liberal and Chicago being, uh, well, old Chicago, as I'll explain in a second, it seems to be, it seems to me, and... Um, the story is actually quite convincing that they were having one overarching question in their mind. Uh, and that applies to that Kolok Lippmann in 1938 and to the whole discussion, which is the old liberalism, which existed until 1914, um, was wonderful and brought lots of liberty and lots of material prosperity, but it didn't. Um, proved to be very robust, right? So it didn't really survive 
the ideological challenges of the late 19th and early 20th century, and also the, the forms which it had developed uh, basically crashed during World War I and never came back, right? So the world after World War I was uh, fundamentally different from the one pre-1914. And so what they were actually looking for is new frameworks, as they would call it, or new orders, which roughly speaking is the same, new forms of liberalism, which are more robust than the ones earlier. Or we can actually call it also slightly differently. They were looking for some preconditions or prerequisites, meaning those frameworks. And if those are identified, so if we have the good rules which add up to a framework, and that framework is robust, or as we could also call it today, resilient, then uh, the history of liberalism will not be a um, sequence of successive crashes and um, uh, disasters as the one of the old liberalism. So, And that was a shared agenda in Freiburg and in Chicago. So what are the, the rules of the game, both for the economic game, but also for society at large, because the economy is conceptualized both in Chicago and in Freiburg as a subset of society, which must be seen in its embeddedness in society. So what are the, what are the frameworks for the economy and the interfaces to the other order of society so that a shock like World War I or a shock like the Great Depression doesn't destroy the order of economy and society yet again. So that was a joint search. And so even though we don't have those shared letters or huge uh, sets of correspondence, uh, there seems to be, um, that's, that's my most recent thought about it. I, I think they were living in a, such a, similar world, despite the differences which you had on both sides of the Atlantic, that that search for a robust order which will survive shocks of that kind was actually something fundamentally shared. And that's how we get to those similarities. So the similarities on a more practical, uh, on a more practical level are um, basically um, how do we get to a good order of the economy, which both uh, economists in at Chicago and in Freiburg call a competitive order. So what are the rules of the game, constitutional or subconstitutional, actually both, within which we can have a competitive process which gets us all the benefits of markets which we have known, at least since Adam Smith. But the lesson really is that the old liberalism at some point, at least in the late 19th century, early 20th century, started emphasizing laissez-faire too much. And that whole group of people we're, we've been discussing here, Chicago and Freiburg and London, et cetera, came up with the idea that if it is a robust uh, order, it must be about, the whole research program must be about laissez-faire within rules. So if the rules are set properly, then the laissez-faire pro process is wonderful and actually Again, quite robust vis-a-vis uh, -vis all the shocks which can hit the systems. Uh, the system, if the rules are defunct, as they turned out to be earlier, laissez-faire doesn't serve as well because the shock destroys the system yet again. And the new Chicago question, which you also posed, is basically answerable in that in that way. After World War II, once the order got sort of robust in the sense that you had the Pax Americana and everything was at least as seen from today, a pretty stable world. 
the new Chicago ones, meaning, meaning Milton Friedman and George Stigler, even though Friedman is a complicated case, he actually kept to a certain extent the spirit of old Chicago. They stopped, and certainly the later generation of Becker and, um, and others, they stopped emphasizing the, the within rules part as much as the old Chicago school of the 1930s and 40s did. Which again, I think can be tied to, to that fragility moment, right? So if you live in a fragile world, you are fundamentally worried about the rules because those rules can get make can make the world somewhat less fragile. If you live in a stable world, like the post-World War II world, you forget about the rules and say, well, to, to, they are, to a certain extent, they're already fixed, so there is not a window of opportunity of shaping them. But above all, they're not so super important because the world is stable in the first place. So we don't need the rules to stabilize it. But in the interwar period, we're talking about that within rules, um, section of laissez-faire moving rules appeared to all of them quite central or really super central. No, I think that was an excellent overview. And I have a couple of follow-up questions here specifically to guess more into ordo-liberalism and some of the principles that we can pull and start discussing from that first part of our discussion. But before I jump into that, I think it's actually now time for us to take our quick break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Stefan Kolev today. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Stefan Kolev today. So, so Stefan, I think the first part of our conversation was great. We toured some of the uh, intellectual and uh, uh, background for uh, ordo-liberalism itself that took us into a different path where we talked about neoliberalism as a whole of the time and, and how we orient ordo-liberalism within those discussions. And we also touched on old Chicago, new Chicago, great foundation to drill deeper into ordo-liberalism now, we've oriented ourselves even further with some of these traces. So I'm going to drill into a couple points that I noted down that you sort of traced as you went through, but now we can get into them a little further. And I'd like to actually get you to unpack a quote to get a little more precise on what ordo-liberals uh, viewed as uh, valuable. So in one of your uh, essays, you wrote, ordo-liberals looked for, quote, orders which could fulfill a double criterion, enable material prosperity, and equally important, a humane life in liberty and justice. So clearly in this essay here, you wanted to emphasize that both were equally important. That implies that some people might lose view of that or, or not view them as what as one of the same in terms of importance. So can you unpack that a little more? Why is this uniquely ordo-liberal in a certain way? As you mentioned in the introduction, I'm only an economist. And economists have, as all professions, uh, some professional deformations. So whenever economists, have, like today's economists, but I would say, as we explained a second, also much uh, earlier economists, one of our deformations is to only think about material prosperity. So if an order serves the economy well, if there is some degree of efficiency which has been achieved by that order, many economists already in the 19th century would say, well, we're good. So let's uh, let's say this is a good order and check it. And by that, uh, our task is fulfilled. 
Already in the 19th century, some other economists criticized that, criticized that position as being economistic, as they call it, which means that um, the criteria for an, for an adequate order, if it's only the material prosperity which it generates, is too narrow, right? So we should not be economistic. We should not think of the economy as only producing the material goods which it needs, which all of us need. That's super important, but that's one of two criteria. And the second criterion uh, for the old liberals um, is that criterion of humane. And humane, as you said in that quote, um, and I think, again, it's important to think of the time in which they were working and living. And so Oiken and his friends were in some resistance circles against the Nazis and actually barely survived the war. So if you put yourself into their shoes and into the world they were living through, um, it's quite clear that efficiency is not enough. It's a, it's a necessary condition for a good order, but it's not a sufficient condition. And so humane basically means that um, we need liberty. So we need an order which enables people to live a free life. And we need an order uh, which, in, which ensures justice as well. Um, now, we can talk specifically about their notions of freedom and justice, which again are not fundamentally different from what other people might know from the Austrians, uh, even though one should say that Christianity and Christian um, virtues were probably more important for the Ordo Liberals than for the Austrians. But basically, um, they said, we need an economy where um, people can have a good life apart from efficiency and apart from material uh, plenty. And so the, that competitive order, which I called earlier, the good or, or let's say the well-ordered economy, um, fulfills both criteria. It's not only productive, it not only generates innovations and cheaper products and all of that, but it also enables that humane life because competition, as the ordo liberal seed, is a disempowerment instrument, right? So the more competitors that there are on the other side of the market, the less power those people have, have over you on the labor market, on the commodity market, right? So, and the less power they have over you, um, the more, um, let's say, the more autonomy uh, in what you do and the more autonomy over the prices you negotiate with the other side of the market you have. Um, so this is important. So the disempowerment um, slogan, which is, by the way, equally powerful in Chicago at the time, because during the New Deal, you have similar entanglements um, of special interest groups and the state. Um, so disempowerment is basically the key to ensure that um, humane order. And for the disempowerment, you need competition. And that is why well-ordered economy is the competitive order. And I do want to drill a little further into that by saying so, like, and as you noted here and in some of your essays about this, that sort of the, quote, arch enemy for the ordo liberal was indeed power, just as you were starting to talk about. And of course, I think, you know, I really like the way you pointed out that, you know, apart from efficiency and, and material plenty and essentially economic freedom, which enables that, uh, you've also pointed out that, you know, 
state power can get in the way of that, and then that's bad enough. But there is also the discussion of private power that ordo liberals are very concerned about. And often I find in many conversations, the state power takes up most of the spotlight. But I really like how in what I've read from you, you do talk a lot about private power. Can you talk a little bit more about what we mean by private power in this context and how indeed it can be in practical senses limiting to people's freedom and how the ordo liberal would view private power in, in doing so? Because I think this is a concept not as well explored sometimes. So I want to talk about private power. Yes, I agree with you that um, the power of the state or the coercion of the state, if we prefer, is much, uh, much easier to see and to pinpoint. Um, private power is much more ephemeral and we live in a world today that's important to understand. So I agree with you that, especially many liberals, uh, downplay the importance of private power. But we live in a super integrated global economy uh, where markets are as integrated as they have um, been, let's say, pre-1914 or perhaps even more integrated. On integrated markets, um, private power, meaning some monopoly, cartel, and things like that, are actually not super problematic um, because markets are mostly contestable. And so if somebody has a power and abuses that power, that basically pulls competition uh, to that market and then the monopoly or cartel quite soon afterwards is uh, either disappeared or uh, irrelevant. But again, uh, it's important to think of their time. So the 1920s, but especially after the Great Depression, was a time of disintegrating markets, right? So uh, the global market fell apart and even more apart, et cetera, et cetera. So that process of disintegration actually left um, um, the individual, uh, let's say national um, markets or even regional markets um, more and more and more fragmented. And on fragmented markets, uh, when also the infrastructure is not the one we have today, uh, market power can be quite ugly. Right, so um, you can have um, some nationwide cartel uh, which produces cement, and whenever Germany or any other country is disconnected from the global market, then you can uh, get into trouble if you don't if you want to get cement from them and their prices are super high, or if things get politicized, um, um, if some politician doesn't like you, you cannot get cement even if you wanted to pay the high price. What is important about private power is also that it's not only, or as I would say, not primarily the private power, which is the, the, the ugliest. The ugliest is really the combination of state and private power, right? So whenever you have cartels and monopolies and the associations which represent uh, those tendencies, they we can call them lobbyists, which is a nice term for something which is less nice, I believe. Um, but they are incentivized in many ways to capture the state uh, and to see the state as a prey from which they can extract ever more privileges and um, rents. So even if private power is not so painful on, mar on markets, which is, as, as I said, the case on open markets. Uh, it is a political-economic a political threat to a well-functioning society because those groups organized in Berlin or today in Brussels or in Washington or in Ottawa, um, they have that constant um, 
reaching out for the state, constant, um, in a certain sense in a democracy that's okay, but um, there is a thin line between what is okay and what becomes rent-seeking and uh, extraction of uh, rents and privileges. So this can actually get quite ugly. And they were seeing this thing taking place in the 1920s, uh, which was new because again, pre-1914, extremely open markets, the state was much smaller. So World War I made the state in Germany way larger and way more uh, comprehensive in uh, the way it managed the economy. Um, yeah, and so this is, as I see, the real threat of private power. Not so much uh, the di dictating of prices or wages or interest rates that can be unpleasant, uh, but the ugly part is really the, um, the combination of private and state power. And that's why I think we have to be attentive to the two. There is no way to think of a society without power. I'm very far from being an anarchist, and I find that a, for many reasons and after many debates, a pretty naive position. Uh, so the task here is not basically to accept that the human being in its anthropology has some drive for power, which is, as I see it, impossible to destroy or to, to, uh, to tame what we can do is try to civilize it and to make the effects of those power entanglements which we aim at uh, as bearable, as um, as livable as possible, right? So, um, and this attempt of the order liberals to basically conduct economic policy not so much by the discretion of politicians and bureaucrats, but by rules. Um, and those, those rules should be as general as possible, is precisely that attempt to leave as little loopholes and as little, as little exemptions and as little discretionary rooms where somebody in the German Bundestag or in the Canadian Parliament uh, can leave um, room for yet another privilege and rent, right? So um, the whole program of rule-based policy, as we could translate that strange German term of Ordnungspolitik, is really to, to try to tame and civilize as much as possible that urge for power, which is both visible in politics and on markets, and especially when those two start um, combining, as they constantly do. So, like, you know, you've sort of established again that there's these uh, there's both the pi private and public aspect of our discussion, or in other words, there's sort of two arenas that the ordo liberals would be concerned about: the economic and the political. On the economic side, you did talk about, you know, a, a, a disempowering sort of forces, obviously markets and competition. And I want to talk to you a bit more about that because one of the things I gather from a couple of your essays about the history of ordo liberalism, and this ties back to your discussion about laissez-faireing the laissez-faire argument too much, if you will. There it seems that a bit of an order liberal twist on laissez-faire is that, you know, letting competition loose on its own is actually not enough. And sometimes competition may need to be enforced or anti-competitive tendencies actually need to be supervised and guarded against. This is something I gather from what you're discussing. So uh, how, how do we, again, orient that in our heads with what could be viewed as sort of, as you were saying earlier, I think, the idea that some of the laissez-faire arguments went too far within the framework. How do we reconcile that with the idea that there, there seems to me, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, to be a bit of an order liberal twist on that idea that some of the activity in the sandbox might also need some supervision beyond, beyond just rules? So let me put it like that. Um, 
Eucken and, and his colleagues, so it was a school of law and economics, basically, we can say, came up with certain principles. And one of the, um, one of the constitutive principles says that, um, well, we need open markets, right? When we have open markets, um, as a rule, um, private power will be, uh, would not disappear, right? It can exist, but it can be short-lived. And there is a re regulative principle in that system of principles, and that says, well, nevertheless, we need some authority to, to control for, um, for market power, especially for the reasons I just mentioned. So, um, again, all of those people understand the benefits of markets. What they have experienced in their lives is that um, and by the way, what I have experienced as a kid in Bulgaria, where by chance I am right now, is that um, those processes on markets can develop the Canadian way, which, as I would say, is like a civilized game. And the game can be painful to some, and yet uh, it is a game embedded in rules which society at large sees as sort of just and fair, or it can develop the Bulgarian way of the 90s, which was really like a jungle. So the, we have two questions here. The first question is, yes, laissez-faire, but if we put it into those uh, well-defined rules, um, society gets a sense that the economic order it lives in is legitimized by those good rules, right? And as we know, I mean, it's a constant topic. Uh, ever since we live in a modern world, that capitalism is a system which many people have difficulties to accept. So a well-shaped uh, set of rules um, can actually contribute quite substantially to accepting capitalism as a system. And what happened after the war, the social market economy in Germany, which was fundamentally based on the, or the liberal ideas, actually did something quite surprising. It really reconciled the Germans with capitalism, which had always been a very difficult marriage. So a well-devised um, set of rules, again, antitrust, an independent central bank, and all those uh, things which developed in Oxford, Germany, based on the Freiburg School idea, or set of ideas, really um, succeeded in legitimizing the economy, so capitalism, and also in legitimizing by that, uh, the, the, the very young uh, republic. So that's the one task. Let's get good rules for the economy. The second task, however, and this is something which some other order liberals like Wilhelm Röpke and Alexander Rusto developed. The second set of the second question about rules is: okay, the playing field now has good rules. The game is seen as sort of fair, humane, as we said before. But how about the playing field itself? So is the playing field of that free economy and society stable per se? Or does it need some stabilizers which prevent something like 1917 in Russia or 1933 in Germany from happening again? So um, basically, what are the pillars on which a free society is actually based? And what is the role of the state and of civil society in constantly stabilizing those pillars? so that the playing field doesn't crash, which is another quest for more 
sociological and anthropological rules. Um, and if those two questions are answered adequately, so we have good rules on the playing field and we have stable foundations of the playing field, then the laissez-faire game is, well, what economists like, but it's especially a game uh, to which citizens subscribe, um, let me call it um, sustainably, right? So there is a long-term acceptance and legitimacy for that economic order. And today we see yet again that many people unsubscribe from the economic order we have and start searching for some profits, which then of course starts supplying all kinds of substitute uh, recipes for other economic orders, right? So that is basically that quest for rules. So laissez-faire is wonderful. That's what economists know most about. But here we have a group of lawyers and economists, and they said, well, let's try to prevent that wonderful playing field uh, from being a jungle and from being a jungle on unstable foundations. And going further into that point, specifically in the, in the political sphere and the political arenas, because you were talking about how the ordo liberals were concerned about not only the rule of law, but in the sense like legislation and rules of the game that are as general as possible tying that back into what you were talking about as a as rent seeking and lobbying and things like that i think it's very important to note that as you were saying it's probably natural in these systems to understand that there's always going to be some form of lobbying or rent seeking attempted uh by other private power like let's say, let's say business of course if the rules remain and the approaches remain as general as possible, that'll mitigate the the threats and, and the negatives that could come from the rent seeking. But I think the biggest risk, as you were saying to the order liberal in the political arena, is when the rules become less general, not only are you enabling more rent seeking and lobbying, which is, is one thing unto itself for privilege, but that's how you're opening the door to the merger of the state and private power that you were talking about. Yeah. So uh, that task, um, as I see it, is really... Um and I think they saw that as well. This is an infinite job, right? So the 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 idea that at some point we have resolved uh, the the question of power, or at some point we have disconnected uh, democracy from the economy, is in many ways naive, right? So I compare it. I hope I pronounce it correctly in English. I compare it to Sisyphus, who was pushing up that stone up a hill, and the stone comes down yet again. And nevertheless, pushing the stone up the hill is important because it teaches, it teaches society that privileges and rents are not okay, right? So it's an ongoing process, searching for transparency, searching for, um, again, generality, searching for closing loopholes, of which, for example, the German tax system is like a terrible uh, example of producing yet another loophole after the other. Um, so those principles are not buttons. You can press them and then you get the ideal order. But they're really something like a maxim for yet another generation, which should aim at keeping those connections um, between, let's say, democracy and the economy um, minimal. Um, but again, it's an ongoing fight. And that's what I meant by ins getting inspirations from those books. Every generation, if it understands the importance of um, of those general rules, should strive yet again for uh, for them. So let me put it like that: um, those people 
understood that society is a system of interdependent orders, right? So you have the economy, you have the legal order, you have the order of the state, you have the order of science, you have the order of religion. They are not um, disconnected. Actually, quite on the contrary. Interdependent means that they are connected um, by, as I draw it, by arrows. And those arrows mean that they can send out impulses, right? So the legal order can send out impulses to the state or to the economy and vice versa. Um, so you, you should not and you cannot disconnect them, right? Um, but uh, you should not merge them. And the country I live in, which is right now uh, for my holidays, Bulgaria, the country I grew up in, here the state and the economy are actually completely indistinguishable. It's the same people, it's the same, roughly speaking, clans, which have basically, which share the commanding heights both in the economy and in politics. Uh, so actually that... Um, attempt to disconnect the two is probably impossible, right? In most Western democracies uh, and in those fragile democracies of the interwar period, we can at least try and try again and again and again, and we get a decent um, degree of lobbyism which does not explode into some ugly forms of corruption as it does here. I just want to switch gears into a couple of other points before our formal wrap-up. One of them is um, the order liberal view, and I know it, it'd be hard to talk about every specific figure in order liberalism and get to too many specifics, but but generally speaking, can you give us a, a flavor of the order liberal view on the ideal position of the state in welfare or, or social safety net, for instance? What, what sort of general sentiments come from this crowd in terms of the state's role in ensuring the welfare of its citizens be, beyond the things we talked about in the economic arena and the political arena uh, in terms of uh, competition and corruption and so on? So social security is important um, for them. Also, of course, in the German context, because it existed way uh, since the, let's say, since the 1870s and 80s. So the social question was uh, there. And of course, um, they lived in a time where uh, poverty and unemployment were huge, especially after the Depression. Um, so there are quite a few differences among the authors, because some remained in Germany, some emigrated, and depending on the context they lived in, there are differences. But what I would say is uh, perhaps the fundamental shared notion uh, of security is that, yes, security is a value which the state in combination with civil society, needs to provide, must provide. So modernity is an age where we cannot uh, rely on the family, uh, right, on some pre-modern mechanisms to provide security. So modern society with its state needs to provide um, um, security. And again, we come to the generality point. Uh, so if Oiken had lived long enough, which he didn't, because he passed away a few months after the Federal Republic was founded, I'm pretty sure that, and we can see what happened in the social market economy in the 50s and 60s when his friends were still alive and uh, sort of in power. The quest was really to set up a system which is fairly general, so not super many exceptions, right? A system which creates a sense of security with those tools like an old, pay, old age pension or uh, some public health insurance, which again existed already uh, before uh, 1914. Um, but they should not suffocate, they should not crowd out 
private initiative, right? So it should not be an encompassing welfare state. So Ludwig Erhard, who was the most important, let's say, entrepreneur pushing those ideas in the public domain as a minister of the economy, uh, were actually fighting uh, the notion of a welfare state. So he wanted security um, and above all, a sense of security. So not only like some objective numbers or something like that, he wanted people to believe that the social market economy ensures security without that overarching and um, ever-expanding welfare state. But that became a difficult thing in a real existing democracy. So the welfare state kept, kept, kept expanding as it has in basically every country. Um, so again, a sense of security without suffocating private initiatives, um, um, some decentralized uh, provision of security that is important. Um, and sort of a limited network of security as opposed to um, an ever-expanding uh, scheme of securing every, everybody against anything on a super high level. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very important uh, dis- distinction, right? The, the idea of like a social market economy versus a welfare state that covers different aspect of your of your of lives like would it would it be fair to summarize it in saying that like you know for example the ordo liberal would be and back to our general generalization point and all the other great things we discussed today that the ordo liberal would be more in favor of something like a like a universal basic income or a negative income tax versus for instance a series of tax credits or whatever to put your child in soccer or something like that you know what i mean in canada like for example i always make fun of the sort of um welfare chasing that a lot of canadian governments do where there's always like a little pot project for someone's different activity where they can get some money from the government if, if they are doing x y and z in their lifestyle whereas to me that that violates the idea and the principle of the generality we were talking about so all that to say i know i know policy is a difficult thing to discuss but would that maintaining a level of security and stability for everyone as a general rule would be more within the order liberal framework rather than like pot projects of welfare basically is what i'm understanding i fully agree with one historical exception you must, have, you must, of course, understand that the post-war German society had many um, super difficult questions like, what do you do with widows? What do you do with veterans and things like that? So, or what do, what do you do with the destroyed cities you have? So in those contexts, it's very difficult to remain general because treating unequal things equally is very unfair, right? So having that very polarized society also in terms of assets yeah, the one has a horse because he just come from east, from the eastern parts of the country. The other one still has a house because he was lucky not to be bombed out. So in, I think in principle, I agree uh, if they had lived like until the 70s. But, but in the 50s and 60s, there were still those wounds from two world wars, hyperinflation, et cetera, et cetera. So, and they were, that's important. They were, their political economy is for the time. We can learn a lot from it but it has been compiled for that specific context. Um, so that's why I always say, well, I believe that's what they would have said. But again, they were writing for the painful uh, moments which they had to live through. And those were like super difficult with many specific social questions which had to be addressed separately. And I'm just going to move us ahead to, to our formal wrap up here, Stefan. I think, you know, we, we've talked about a lot, you know, and our time has wound down here. And at the end of the conversation, I always want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to put her finer point on her conversation. So, so let me ask you what, what is my final question to all our guests, which is, 
what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on what ordo liberalism is and what the principles are? And in other words, if you wanted someone listening to take away one or two or just a few things from this conversation, ultimately, what would those be? Okay, so point number one, laissez-faire within rules, which means that, of course, liberals are for liberty, but liberty is... Liberty presupposes forms or orders or spheres. And there are many different ways uh, we can call. Um, and only then is a free society a livable society, a society in which we really want to live. So that's point number one. Um, liberty has to be embedded in a, in a system of good rules or else it's a jungle which is very free uh, but not really uh, particularly worthwhile uh, and not particularly worth uh, living in. The second point is that um, whenever we try to make society and the economy a better place, we should not try to intervene into the economic process, so in the prices or um, in, the, uh, in the moves of the game of people. But instead, we should try to shape the rules of the game, meaning the framework within which people are then free to interact uh, in the best ways they see for each other. So the framework and shaping that framework, and again, as I said in the beginning, shaping that framework permanently, uh, every generation with a new neoliberalism, is actually the challenging task for social scientists, economists, PPE people, Right, so we need better frameworks. Final point, I think we live in the best world that has ever existed, which of course doesn't mean that we live in the best world which could exist in the best possible world of all. Um, and I believe that this specific take on political economy, which is, we know a lot about the economics and we also know a lot about the framework um, of political economy, which we need around those economic processes, um, I think such a political economy can get us even closer to the best of all possible worlds. But I think it, I think it's important to understand that the plenty of history of economics, history of political thought, actually provide us with quite a large set of inspirations, uh, how we can get both over the crisis, which we have today, the multiple crises of our time, and also how we can get from that wonderful world in which we live to an even better world, uh, which again, with the ordo liberals, should be more efficient in the sense of more productive, but also uh, more humane. It is humane, it's very humane as compared to all worlds uh, which we have experienced, but there is still some room for improvement. And I hope that this historical approach to political economy can help us to get there. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. Stefan Kolov, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you, Alex. It was a wonderful conversation. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Quite inspiring. And it, also, it, always, it always makes me think of some things I've thought for quite a while in some new ways. So thank you. For, thank you so much. And thank you for being on. I enjoyed it very much as well. And I hope you'll come back and we could talk about some other stuff maybe one day. Anytime. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. 
The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.